Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. Today, we're saying goodbye to 2016 and hello to what's hopefully a better 2017. You can learn more about the Brother, Brother, Brother pod at brotherpod.com, rate and review us on iTunes, or follow us on Twitter or Facebook for more info. Now let's talk 2016. Podcast. Um, I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm joined today by my brothers, Christian Lewis and Jeremy Sartori. Today we are bidding a uh, not-so-fond farewell to 2016, a, a year that robbed us of a lot of talent and uh, delivered us a lot less talent. Um, and then we're going to take a look at uh, what we're looking forward to in 2017. Um, but first, uh, we're going to talk about some of the uh, great artists that we lost in 2016. And just as a uh, preface this by saying, this is by no means a completionist's list. It is uh, a handful of people that we just wanted to talk about briefly and bid farewell to uh, as we leave 2016. So I was going to kick it off by talking about uh, two of the most major rock star, pop stars of my lifetime, uh, David Bowie and Prince. Uh, we lost both of them this year, and both meant a lot to all three of us. Uh, for and they hit us at different times in our lives, and and you know had different uh, places in our lives. But uh, you want to talk about Bowie first? Yeah, that works. Yeah, that sounds good. Hit it. Well, there's not much that you know hasn't been said about Bowie except for you know I think I can only give sort of my personal feelings for Bowie. He's just a guy that I. Uh, I like to talk about is staying relevant forever. I mean, it's so rare that a, a pop star who is both popular and uh, groundbreaking maintains kind of a, a cool factor or a, you know, sort of a relevance factor. And, you know, I, I personally love Bowie in kind of phases. I, I enjoy a lot of the early glam rock stuff as well as the kind of Berlin years. But, you know, hats off to how many folks that I love that he influenced and, and then also just the fact that this guy, um, you know, never lost it, which was yeah. amazing. Well, he Good. also made one of the more astounding exits uh, in the history of pop music. I mean, you talk about a guy who uh, really never, I mean, truly never seemed to have a hair out of place and never seemed to not be cool. I don't think there was ever a moment in time when when Bowie wasn't cool. Even, uh, you know, it, it, he sort of had a, um, an arc, a creative arc that uh, a lot of people don't get to have or, or, you know, he established it himself, but where he came out as, you know, very cool, went very uh, introspective and avant-garde and then decided to sell out, so to speak, but without much repercussion from the public. I mean, everybody was willing to follow him into his quote-unquote sellout phase of, you know, the early 80s without much, you know, consternation. He was, you know, it, it was all okay because he was him. Well, and I think that it's important, you know, selling out is is not always, I mean, it's taken on a more negative connotation even. Uh, 
Cashing uh, in, I should say. Yeah, I, I think that that's probably a more more appropriate way of, of saying it. I mean, I think you know, at the end of the day, he was he never really compromised on on his create on his creativity or his creative vision. And you know, I think one of the one of the things that I, I, I sort of most admire him for is the fact that he was always pushing um, and and always innovating, uh, sort of pushing on the outer parameters of what was acceptable and cool and pop music, um, and uh, and and really sort of trying to trying to sort of push music uh, one step further. That I think you know is is a very difficult thing to do. I mean, you you look at uh, the vast majority of artists and and um, or innovators in any field really, and and there's so much pressure um, to be successful that when you finally hit and reach success, it's very easy to become complacent. Mm-hmm. And I think he was always sort of looking just over the horizon at at what direction this was going. And you know, we've talked about this this most recent album that came out this year. Um, I'm excited to to sort of spend more time with it and and really sort of warm to it because I I think that you know he knew that this was ultimately going to be his sort of his final his epitaph and and um, you know I, I think that there's there's a lot in there that that I've yet to fully unpack. Well, so I I we won't skip ahead to what we're looking forward to in 2017, but I I would agree with you. I'm looking forward to acquainting myself better with that record because. What his death and the whole sequence of his death, where he dropped the album on a Friday, died on a Sunday, um, you know, it it made me want to go. It made me immediately want to go back and revisit his existing catalog um, to go back to some of the favorites of mine, Station to Station, Low, um, even Scary Monsters, and and things that I hadn't listened to as much as I, sh- you know, whatever shouldn't or shouldn't have. Um, I had never really given young Americans a ton of time before he died. So I was, I was kind of busied myself immediately with revisiting his older work, and I haven't sunk my teeth into Black Star as much as I planned to in 2017. So, Wyndham, you, uh, you know, I think one of the things that we've, we've talked about a lot uh, this year since actually we were, we were together out in L.A. when um, I was out visiting you when we, when we first heard the news about Prince. Um, but, you know, one of the... One of the great sort of observations that I thought you made then was was that you know like Bowie, um, Prince was really a guy who never really uh, never really took the persona off and and you know in some respects it isn't even a persona after decades in the business um, and what I really mean is that you know when you think about celebrity you think about people who are who are uh, on the weekends you know in sweatpants and and uh, and baseball caps and dark glasses sort of going to get a, a coffee at Starbucks Not or something. Prince. No. He was he was in purple sequin jumpsuit at Starbucks maybe. Um, but but probably not even uh, probably wouldn't have gone the, to the Starbucks. The funny thing is is he was you know people were always referred to him as mysterious and and you know that sort of existed um, you know earlier on but it you know my friends that are from Minnesota said the guy was never particularly reclusive. He was busy, but, um, you know, he would invite people over to the house. Uh, he was, you know, sort of open to talking to people and things shy, but not, not crazy reclusive. I mean, the guy didn't live upside down in a cave like we thought he did in the eighties. Um, well, maybe, maybe what was mysterious from the perspective of people in New York and LA was that he fact that he chose to continue to live in Minnesota. Chan in Minnesota. Yeah, um, exactly. But, you know, I think, I, you know, I don't want to get, uh, again, I don't want to jump ahead of ourselves to uh, the George Michael conversation we'll have uh, as he, you know, died uh, very recently at the tail end of the year. But if you think about a, a common 
through line with Bowie Prince and George Michael is that they were all in, they were all very visual artists. Obviously, George Michael and Prince being of the MTV age, but Prince even predates the MTV age uh, by several years, and Bowie certainly does. But Bowie was creating MTV type short films. Long before there was an, long before there was a market for it or an outlet for it, he, you know, there was all of. If you notice, or you did, wouldn't have noticed, it was early MTV. Played a lot of Bowie, uh, because Bowie had always had always made films to to correspond with his his work. So, you know, by the time MTV came out, he had videos for all of the songs on Scary Monsters. He had videos for you know, a lot of the older uh, albums uh, or the older records he had just because I believe he was a, a visual stylist and these thing, these documents existed or he had, you know, he created them. Um, right. so, so he I was ready Bowie for MTV before MTV. Was a fan as well. I mean, as much as I, I love Bowie and, and he's an originator, he also took from a lot of things, you know. He, he certainly took from, like, the New York scene with with New York Dolls and, and um, you know Johnny Thunder and those guys where Prince you know was visual in the sense that he was kind of a, a true original I mean Prince really blended rock and roll psychedelia and soul music for an African-American guy from the Midwest you know and it was it was really uh, revolutionary at the time you know hence so the name speak. of his, his backup band exactly so um, and also you know we can't mention Prince without mentioning the perfect album, which is Purple Rain. I mean, and maybe we'll have a pod one day in the future on, on perfect albums, the albums that you think are greatest hits albums, and then you realize that they're you know, just a perfect album. Yeah, and it, you know, it hit, it's right in my wheelhouse. It, it's funny, you know, there's sort of that moment when you're a little bit younger and you're sort of deciding your musical direction. I think a lot of people have this relationship with George Michael's faith as well. Uh, with Purple Rain, it was it was cool to like Prince. Prince was a cool, you know, Prince was cool. But, you know, if you were getting in, you know, I was listening to Prince and the Dead Kennedys and the Circle Jerks and the Ramones and all that stuff. Um, Prince was, Prince was uh, absolutely uh, passable. It wasn't like you would be uncool for listening to Prince. But it, it also, there are a lot of people, I'm sure, who are metalheads and punk guys that sort of listen to it on the sly because nobody could resist it. And I kind of feel like... Uh, George Michael was was a little bit similar. I hear a lot of people talking about how, you know, they they bucked their you know they bucked their heavy metal instincts and and listened to Father Figure in the car. Um, before we get to George Michael though, and I, I've already mentioned him a couple of times, but I'd like to to sort of um, finish out a, a, you know a list of a handful of people. Like I said, this is not a completionist's list of 2016 uh, notable deaths, but. Uh, Jerry, I wanted you to talk a little bit about two country legends that died this year in uh, Merle Haggard and Guy Clark. Yeah, so in the country singer-songwriter world lost two of, of two greats, in my opinion. And uh, I'm not going to talk too much about Merle. I mean, Merle is, you know, on Mount Rushmore of, of country music as far as I'm concerned. He's a legend, you know, not only a guy who could sing, but a guy who wrote all of his music and, you know, I highly recommend going back and listening to the Columbia years and his sort of late 60s stuff is, is what I think is really the sweet spot. The guy that I had a little more of a, a sort of personal relationship with in the sense that I, I got to see live a lot of times and um, also just really enjoyed was Guy Clark and, and a little less lesser known singer-songwriter out of Texas, but somebody who people like Merle, Johnny Cash, uh, Towns Van Zandt, you know, Lightning Hopkins, all sort of hung out with, played with, toured with. 
Um, and, you know, Guy Clark was one of those classic sort of songwriters who, who spent some time in Nashville, L.A., but was Texas, Texas born. And in the 70s, when a lot of those guys migrated back to Texas, sort of led by, by Willie and, and Waylon Jennings, uh, Willie Nelson, that is, Guy Clark put out, I think, two of his best albums in 76 and 77, Old Number One and Texas Cooking, and, and he married his longtime wife, Suzanne, who he wrote a lot about, and uh, I got to see him probably, you know, ten times, both at, you know, kind of a folk fest around the hill country of Austin um, when I was living in Chicago, just a great showman, great storyteller, um, you know, a lot of people covered his songs and had some hits with it. Um, with them but some of the songs that I really recommend and, and people digging back into are you know Anyhow I Love You or Old Number One or uh, Roberta just some fun great Texas swinging country and uh, you know if you ever get a chance to see the Towns documentary or, or some of the documentaries on these guys Guy Clark is a real fixture in that scene well that's, that's what I was going to say actually my a lot of my exposure has been you know through uh, interview footage, and, and it seemed like Guy Clark's profession was best friend to everybody in country. <laughs> yeah. Not only that, but, like, the world's happiest couple, and it may it may be what kept him from, you know, it may be what kept him at the cult status of being good instead of, you know, sort of uh, Mount Rushmore great. Is Guy Clark always seemed like a pretty happy guy. Yeah, having been, you know, married for a while... I, I can't say again. There's a song off Texas Cooking, Anyhow I Love You, is to his wife. And it, it it's just such a perfect love song. And, and Guy Clark had a really great way with words. And, a, you know, a guy that never kind of had a ton of success on his own, but others, you know, what do you call it? A musician's musician, right? You know, one mm-hmm. of those guys. A writer's writer, a comedian's comedian. You know, exactly. know who they are. Anyway, moving on, we're, we lost uh, another titan of the music world uh, this year. And... Uh, Thankfully, not prematurely. He was at a, a ripe age, but um, you know, one of the classiest and most influential people in the history of modern music, and that's George Martin. Christian, you want to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think stepping onto the other side of the uh, other side of the glass here in the studio, right? I mean, George Martin is, uh, you know, he was himself a, a classically trained musician. Um, but never, uh, never, you know, found any real acclaim for that. I mean, his, uh, his, his great success was as a producer and, and, um, you know, he was widely known or referred to, uh, by, by Paul McCartney among others as, uh, as the fifth Beatle. Um, uh, I think a moniker that he, uh, he very humbly sort of rejected and said that, no, really that, that title should probably go to their longtime, uh, longtime, uh, roadie and, and, and sort of helper, but, I think um, you know Martin. Martin really was. I mean, as you say, a, a titan of the music industry. I mean, he had um, he produced thirty number one hits in the UK, twenty three in the United States, um, and I think that that part of his success really was um, really was a, a product or, or his ability to sort of capitalize on on a very particular time in music. So you know, his his personal break. He was a veteran of, of World War II and, and went to went to drama school. Subsequently, studied music there. Um, and then, and then, following that, uh, graduated and worked for for BBC's classical music department, and then joined um, joined EMI in 1950 as an assistant to uh, EMI's Parlophone Records. Now, yeah, he, he mean, actually wound up producing a lot of comedy records in there, which is kind of interesting. That's right, and I'm thinking like the Flanders and Swan shit that we were subjected to as children. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, which by the way is not funny to ten year olds. Um, but uh, 
but you know he he was you know that was sort of the that was sort of the mainstay of of, of that label at the time and you know he saw this incredible talent um, in in these guys the Beatles and really I think that a huge part of this was the fact that you know they were they were working class kids from Liverpool he was uh, you know a sophisticated. He, he, he was a sophisticant. He was a studied, you know, classically trained musician. He didn't teach himself anything um, in, in that respect. Uh, and, you know, of course, also a, 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 an upstanding member of society, a veteran, all this stuff. Um, he was able to sort of take those guys and, and really communicate the message that they are doing things that are as, as innovative, as impressive, as creative um, as anything that, you know, his personal hero, Rachmaninoff, was doing. Um, and I think as an interlocutor between uh, the musician and, and the label, um, he was the first sort of one of these, these sort of truly great advocates for musicians um, who was able to explain this stuff to the guys in the suits. Um, in addition to that, though, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't just an advocate. I mean, he really was also uh, he, he was also involved member. in their music. Yeah, and then this is where, you know, I think you look at, uh, Eleanor Rigby or something like that, where where he was really responsible for um, for both, you know, composing the, uh, the the string section, but also suggesting that it was used in the first place. I mean, you, that song is is so dependent on that. Uh, yeah. That. Well, I mean, he in in modern parlance, you know, the Beatles had you know had the uh, talent, but uh, George Martin had the dope beats. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's right. He was the um, producer. Yeah, and I, I think you can really hear him come on of his own. Just, just in in Sergeant Pepper's. I mean, is a uh, is a, is is maybe where he he really you know his his imprint is is the clearest. Um, just because of uh, of all of the backing that you know that he was able to provide, much like Spectre provided for um, for American musicians at the, the time. Right, so, yeah. yeah, I would also I'll circle back to it again. Uh, I've got a lot of notes here to to. to go back to what I've uh, already mentioned, but um, I, w- I watched uh, The Beatles Eight Days a Week, the new documentary about their live years, and it really was after they stopped touring that they were able to settle in, and he, you know, he became, uh, I mean, it, it was before that, he was a hugely, a huge part of their early sound, but really after that, when they got into the studio experimentation, that it, it just really turned a corner in The yeah. Beatles. Well, when you think of The legacy. Beatles... Too, which albums do you think of? You know, you think of those sort of the latter albums, and those are the albums that he had a huge part in. We do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, I, you I, know, I, it, it, it was an evolution, and so the, the early ones are really important. And, um, yeah. No, and he was just, I think he was able to, to look, there's, there's no question they would have found their genius they would have found Perhaps a sitar. without without Martin, but I mean, I think that that they wouldn't have mined it to the depth that they did. I don't think so either. Him. Yeah. All right. Well, I so think, uh, you were you on. were actually going to stay, Wyndham. I think uh, on on again that side of the glass and uh, talk about a couple of managers. Well, I was, was going to talk about a couple guys that are you know sort of have a you know a real uh, I have a real soft spot in my heart for um, two people who you know certainly don't. Uh, ring the bell like uh, George Martin or Haggard or Bowie or Prince, but two people who, if you were born in a very specific time um, and grew up in the '70s, these two, you know, shaped your life. And that's Robert Stigwood and Rod Temperton. Stigwood, of course, being uh, famous for managing, uh, being RSO Records and and managing the Bee Gees. Um, RSO, of course. 
uh, was the record label for both the Grease soundtrack and uh, the Bee Gees and also the production company that produced uh, Grease and, um, you know, Saturday Night Fever. So Stigwood, um, he was a, an oddball Australian, one of these guys that was going to make it no matter what, and um, he came over to the uh, the UK. He uh, the, the story goes that he struck a deal with Brian Epstein, uh, and, and sort of took over Brian Epstein's PR firm. Um, and the Beatles refused to work with him, so he told them um, that he was going to make the Bee Gees as big as the Beatles, which, of course, everybody in the world laughed at him for. And then 10 years later, um, despite any protestations to the contrary, that uh, the Bee Gees you know, aren't nearly on the same level as the Beatles, uh, he certainly made them the biggest band in the world for a short period of time. So anyway, good night, Robert Stigwood. And then Rod Temperton, who had a much uh, less uh, showy reputation and, and career. He, he was very quietly uh, the guy who uh, was the mastermind behind Heat Wave, which uh, you know, people remember uh, as Boogie Nights, Groove Line, Always and Forever, a uh, guy who just sort of assembled a band out of, synthesized a band out of a lot of foreign nationals living in Germany and England. And then went on, on the strength of of having written Boogie Nights and Groove Line, uh, to be tapped to uh, provide a bunch of songs for Michael Jackson's first solo album when he left his brothers, and that being uh, Rod Temperton wrote Off the Wall, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, um, and Thriller. So uh, huge, huge impact on the music world. Barely anybody knows his very name, quiet by one, name. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, willfully so. He never really wanted, he never, you know, jumped up and down and demanded credit, quite unlike Robert Stigwood, who did it for things that he hadn't been a part of. Um, you know, Temperton and Stigwood, I'll just mention together because they were two guys that defined that era from different sides of things. And then finally, uh, I think, you know, sadly, uh, this just this week we lost uh, George Michael, and I just wanted to, Jeremy and I had some, um, you know, really lived through the George Michael peak era, uh, Christian less so. Um, but uh, uh, do you want to? Do you want to uh, start? I, I was much more present for the George Michael uh, restroom debacle era, and, <laughs> and sort of found it, you know, a, a strange. No, but I mean, I, I found it sort of an odd story at the margins of pop music. But it wasn't. Uh, but I definitely wasn't there for the for the you know the the full on sort of domination of pop music that that lasted for a couple of years there. Yeah, and I think you know uh, it's funny. He's a guy I actually hadn't thought about a lot in the last ten years, or even longer, um, minus some some stories that popped up here and there. But with his passing, really kind of realized how you know instrumental he was, especially for those of us like myself who grew up with nothing but MTV in their face twenty four seven as as a young kid, and and so, you know, I'll let Win talk a little bit about Wham, and and then I'll I'll talk about my experience with Faith and 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 sort of the the latter George Michael, then the early nineties George Michael. But you know, I will say just off the bat, you know. Wham was just an omnipresent force as a kid. You know, it was always on the radio, and it, it was you know the sort of these two sort of dainty guys dancing around in Dayglow, <laughs> singing sort of uh, you know uh, girl group uh, pop music. You know, it was it was something that you know was huge. And, and when I think you had a slightly different experience with Wham. Um, well, no, I just I remember they were when you know when they first came out, they were sort of 
uh, plunked into the same category of emerging, but, you know, not so well-known British bands that, like, you know, they were on, not on a par uh, with Duran Duran by any stretch, but, it, you know, they were sort of uh, in the same... Um, they were they were sort of in the same mention as like a Depeche Mode or something, which uh, once they're and that was on their first uh, first first album, uh, their second album Make It Big was the one that exploded them in the states with Wake Me Up Before You Go Go and Freedom and um, you know all the a Careless Whisper uh, the the thing which about I, <laughs> the saxophone to death song of course oh yeah. But the funny thing, I mean, and I will say this as opposed to what I just said about Prince, which is that, you know, you could still like all these other things and and like Prince. Uh, You couldn't like all these other things and still like Wham. Wham was uh, carved out uh, something. I was shocked that they were as big as they were. I was definitely in that uh, mode of of going like, okay, why aren't the, you know, why aren't, uh, you know, why isn't Aztec camera huge? And why is, you know, why is anybody listening to Wham? Um, Exactly. (laughs) And, well, let's um, move off of Wham then into the stuff no, that you could like. Well, no, but what I was saying, and gentlemen, this, welcome to the Whamcast. No, no, <laughs> this is a uh, this is uh, very much a, a part a piece of a whole, which is that you know Wham was really embarrassing, um, and in fact, uh, you know, I read Wesley Morris's really thoughtful piece about George Michael today, and and he said that you know if, if, if George Michael could easily have been or. He, I'm paraphrasing, so forgive me, but that he could have been the lost village person had he not been so goddamn talented and good. Um, and that was sort of like, you know, wham to me was super frivolous and cheesy, but then Faith came out and Faith is... Yeah, um, it's a totally different story. You know, I mean, well, I think... You, uh, you were still really reluctant to like the guy um, on the basis of him being part of wham and that, you know, he was this... You know, he he felt like a, a creation, but then the songs were just really great, and it, so it was such a great package that you couldn't really resist. Well, I think going back to video, it's funny we, we sort of mentioned Michael Jackson, and, and I think you think about the big MTV stars, you think Michael Jackson, Madonna, but Bowie, for me, Prince, also, yeah, yeah, and definitely Prince. I think Bowie a little less, but certainly uh, you know had his his time on MTV as well, um, but. You know, ever I can't think of a Michael, uh, you know, a George Michael song without a video attached to it. And Faith is the one that you know back in the day used to have these kind of premieres, right? So there was like this build up and you know, almost a countdown to the video premiere. And, and it was Faith, and it was 1987, and I vividly remember this. You know, I was in um, I don't know, it may have been 11 or 12, and you know, MTV was sort of where I got my, you know, kind of, it was like watching the Playboy channel or something, you know, it was sort of, it was, um, you know, good looking women and, and music videos. And, and so we watched it all the time and, and less parental probably, uh, you know, observation than, than kids have today. Um, and I remember living in a suburb of Boston and, you know, my friend's older sister might've had a room that was wallpapered with George Michael's face. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and Faith came out and, and it was, the, I think immediately the song was just so sexual, you know, he had the leather jacket, the, you know, I, I didn't know a lot of gay people at 12, but I sort of was like, is this guy, <laughs> like, what's going on here? And, um, you know, it, it was just a great kind of, you know, the ripped jeans, the, the, the catchy song. But I think the thing that stands up today about that is like, that's a great song. You know, it's just a, it's a really good song. And I love actually talking about i read the wesley morris article as well 
which I thought was a very great piece. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to actually quote it here, but, you know, he says, faith isn't as great a video as it is a song or an album, but it's important. It's hotness gave Mr. Michael this new macho self to work with, somewhere between a leather bar opening act and the boyfriend that girls in teen comedies think they want, which is, totally. you know, absolutely totally. spot on. I mean, I was I was 18, I think, when that came out. Um, so, you know, I did have a lot of gay friends, and I also, you know, had a lot of girlfriends. And Maybe I'd met some of your friends, so I sort yeah. of had a hint. <laughs> There was, but he was appealing to everybody, and I mean that. I don't mean that in the sense that he was appealing to everybody. That he, you know, that everybody was super drawn to him. But I think he had the brain. You know, he obviously had the smarts to know that he was appealing to all of these, you know, boys and girls and men and women at the same time. Um, that he didn't need to declare one thing or another in his persona. That just you know, sexy was going to be sexy to a lot of different kinds of people. Well, and, and the mega success of Faith kind of then turned a corner. So from 1987, we skipped to 1990, which at that time for mega mm-hmm. stars was, a, a you know, ages. It's a hiatus, with, yeah. Exactly. It was sort of like, what happened to this guy? And uh, he came out with, um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the well, title right now. but It was um, Listen Without Prejudice, Volume Without 1. Prejudice, but yeah. but it, 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 I don't know if you remember, I mean, before you get it, jump into it, this, the sequencing of the singles off that record were um, I Want Your Sex. For Faith. And, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. For Faith. Um, yep. And then, but it was like, so it was, there's like really like dirty and then going into the others. And then as far as Listen Without Prejudice, there was a like a ballad that was a first song. Yeah, it was it was the first song off the album. And it was um and what he did was he sort of retreated from the fame. So and I remember that video vividly as well where you had just lyrics. But the one that really yeah. knocked everyone's socks off and, and became a major hit was Freedom Ninety. And what Michael George Michael did. I keep calling him Michael. I'm thinking like Michael Jackson in my head. What George Michael did was, you know, basically David Fincher directed video, beautiful. I mean, this thing blew me away when I was a kid and gathered, you know, the mega supermodels of the time. So Naomi Campbell, Cindy Crawford, uh, Chrissy Turlington, Linda Evangelista. Evangelista. I mean, just the most beautiful. And this was the height of supermodels. I mean, you think today, you know, supermodel is sort of a word that's thrown around. That was, those women invented that term and had a complete video and song to go with it, you know, without him in it after doing, you know, uh, you know, having six or seven hits off of Faith, um, you know, in the video, the leather jacket gets burned, the jukebox that he was leaning up against blows up and these just gorgeous women uh, lip syncing, you know, what is a fantastic song. And I think obviously very autobiographical at the time of, of him sort of retreating from fame and then kind of wanting to be judged on his merit. And uh, it was great. We Today we, we were, Alexa, my wife and I were, were talking about him and I, she had read the Wesley Morris inter, uh, article as well. And she just put the album on Sonos and to watch my, you know, eight and, and six-year-old daughter just jam out to that song because it's such yeah. a groove and great dance song, you know. It was, it was awesome. One of the things that's that's kind of interesting to me, I mean, I you know, obviously, um, apparently, you guys have been waiting to talk about this very subject for quite some time now, um, because this is this is an incredible, uh, no, incredible uh, knowledge dump, which which I'm really appreciative of. 
I think, um, you know, I spent a lot of time out in Asia uh, for, for work, and, and, you know, Freedom 90 was also one of the first big songs that really crossed the Pacific, one of the first major sort of U.S. pop songs that, that blew up over there. Um, and, of course, that legacy can be felt tenfold now um, in, in terms right. of the way that it's been, you know, crystallized and, and sort of uh, made, you know, made permanent by, by K-pop and J-pop. But he was really, he was a global superstar. Well, I just I wanted to interject only because this is a very key piece of information, which is that during the time that Wham and Duran Duran were kind of going toe to toe over who was going to be bigger, um, Wham's manager uh, booked them as the first Western band to ever play China. And they played, you know, it was very overblown, but they played one concert for like a gymnasiums full of people in China, but came back as the conquering heroes, the first people to cross over and, and used it, used a, um, in a disproportionate kind of visual storytelling to, to tell people, to tell the world that they were massive in Asia, which, you know, became true, but it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's kind of an interesting side note. Sorry. It's no, no, it's a, that's sort of a fascinating PR stunt in many respects. Um, and, and yeah, as you say, one that became a self-fulfilling prophecy, but it is sort of interesting to think of him as, um, you know, somebody who really ultimately embraced sort of the, the true sort of the truly global, um, solo pop artist. And I'm trying to think other than, you know, Michael Jackson is probably one of the few guys to, to really, to really obtain that, uh, that level of success the world over as well. Yeah, I think George Michael doesn't get uh, spoken in the same hushed tones that that Michael Jackson sure. and people like Prince and Madonna do, but but largely because I think his output was was much smaller. He he well, he also he chose to to retreat, but uh, by all accounts, an amazing but again, person. You know, it's a, it's a question of yeah, it's a question of maybe you know not not necessarily having the same critical acclaim here in the West, um, but but having that breadth of reach, I think that, that was greater than than it was for a lot of artists. Yeah, but I think he's one of those ones, too, that people came around on and were like, hey, you know what? That was pretty fucking great. <laughs> so, anyway. well, You guys are certainly doing a great job of making a, making a good case for him. Um, yeah, very, very think, fresh. Yeah, so with that, uh, with that, I think we wrap up our, our you know, the first portion of, of this goodbye podcast. Goodbye, 2016. And, uh, goodbye, 2016. We won't miss it. R.I.P. to all the great artists. Yeah, we'll be back after a break uh, to say hello, 2017. We'll be back in a minute. Back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Uh, today we are saying uh, a uh, not-so-fond farewell to 2016 and the artist it took with it. 
But we are very much looking forward to 2017 and some of the gifts it will bring. So um, let's kick off uh, this looking forward to 2017 with a little bit of a cheat, which is that one of our most anticipated releases of 2017 actually magically showed up on Christmas Day 2016. Christian? Yeah, so we're talking obviously about Run the Jewels 3 here. Um, and I had, uh, as, as you know, listeners may know, um, just Instagrammed, because I couldn't contain myself, how excited we were for the album before the surprise drop. Um, and when this thing hit, I was, uh, I was you know, sitting there watching TV and, and actually talking to Damien, our, our producer, um, on the phone, wishing him a Merry Christmas. And I... Uh, and you know, I got this. I got this email from uh, from their from their listserv, and and I have to say that this is legitimately the uh, you know the first time I think I've I've stayed up all night on Christmas Eve, um, just teeming with excitement, uh, listening to this thing since I was probably eight years old. And you know, the the email was basically, look, it's ready for download. Here it is. And of course, their website had crashed, and it was it was impossible to uh, to download. So so went to iTunes and, and got it there. Um, but you know, to, to, just to set this up with a little bit of context, um, you know, run the jewels are killer Mike MC, um, and, and LP, uh, uh, on the breaks. And, you know, I think these guys are absolutely perfect companions. Um, it's the right blend of sort of incisive social commentary from Mike. There's, there's humor, um, his sort of brazen and twisted poetry. And, uh, you know, from LP, it's got this like nightmarish futuristic, urban soundscape that, that he's just, that he's really sort of made his own. Um, and, uh, you know, from the opening bass drop of Run the Jewels on the first one, um, I was a, I was a total convert. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk too much about the first two albums because I don't think that, that, you know, that's, that's what we're here to, to appreciate. Um, but in a nutshell, uh, I do think that there's an important progression that's taking place here. Run the Jewels one was an experiment. These guys had just met each other. Um, they were introduced by, uh, by DeMarco, the head of um, the head of Cartoon Network's Adult Swim, um, and you know they obviously had very complementary talents, um, but but I think you know they were sort of seeing what they could do together, and it was it was damn impressive. Um, Run the Jewels two was blowing the lid off that. It took it to the next level. It was huge, bold, just full of unbridled hostility. Um, and I think that that's pretty much summed up by the fact that Killer Mike yells, I'm going to bang this bitch the fuck out as the opening, uh, as the opening five seconds of, uh, of, of track on the first track of that album. Um, and you know, for my two cents, I, I don't think it let up until, until the very closing, uh, closing bars there. So, you know, logically, I think I was sort of expecting, um, uh, based on that trajectory, Coupled with um, you know the environment, a sort of more tense and, and challenging political environment that that we were in this year, and of course Killer Mike's own uh, involvement and support of the the Bernie Sanders campaign, I was really expecting something that was going to be more obviously intense, more direct, more hostile, more aggressive, um, and you know I, I just I really wanted these guys to show up and barrel through the bullshit of a of a difficult political season. Um, and, you know, I, I think I, I sort of pictured the, uh, the musical, musical equivalent here of a, of a runaway dump truck packed with explosives, you know, sort of roaring downhill at about 200 miles per hour. So um, I, I think to finally, that's a long intro, to finally actually get to, uh, to Run the Jewels 3, um, you know, I, I really do think that 
I didn't get exactly what I thought I was going to get, and I didn't get exactly what I thought I wanted. Um, but if there's one thing that, you know, I think we would all agree on this podcast that, that music sort of routinely teaches us, it's that um, I don't always know what I want. And sometimes I get surprised, and I get surprised in a good way. Um, this is, without a doubt, Run the Jewels 3, a more considered, more precise um, album. And it makes sense, given that it's actually the longest that they've ever worked on one album. Um, it's much denser sonically. Um, it sounds more mature, and, and the lyrical content, I think, really backs this up. Um, their music is growing in its complexity, just as Killer Mike and LP's friendship is, is really sort of deepening, and, and you know, they've, they've, clearly, um, they've clearly become much tighter through this process. So I think instead of the unrelenting and, like, whiplash-inducing bra- braggadocio of, of one and two... Um, this actually opens up on a very confessional note, and it reflects on sort of how far they've come in such a short period of time. Um, and you get the feeling that they've just personally grown more comfortable with one another, um, and this sort of meteoric success. You know, they're confident in voicing very personal fears, um, as well as fears about sort of the the you know wider sort of direction that, that society's taking. And, you know, I think tonally there's much more sort of creeping darkness here, um, more talk about resignation and giving up. And sometimes it's explicitly about politics or society, but I think other times, and, and you know, that's not particularly new or unfamiliar territory for them. Um, but more often, and the, part that's, the parts that were really sort of so interesting to me, um, were the fact that, that it really sort of delves deeper into their own sort of personal anxieties. Um, so, you know, one of the most rewarding parts of the album here is the window that you get into their into their personal friendship, which which I have to say from day one has always felt like thoroughly honest. I mean, it never seemed like this was the you know, this was the super group. And partly that's because it wasn't. I mean, they were they were independently successful, but the uh, the sum was definitely greater or excuse me, the whole was definitely greater than the sum of its parts here. Um, and, you know, I think that that, again, when when we're talking about sort of the 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 lyrics, um, every time one of them is sort of lured into this, this like place of doubt and negativity and anxiety, which I have to say at times gets very bleak. Um, the other bursts right through the track and offers a dose of, of sort of levity and hostility, which is really sort of their, their calling card at this point. So mm-hmm. there is a sort of yin and yang balance here. And I think that the best example of this, you know, report to shareholders, kill your masters is a great example. It opens up with LP describing his fear of like this Orwellian dystopia, um, you know, in which his rhymes would land him in jail and an admission of his and Mike's sort of deep-seated insecurities about this stuff. Um, you know, he says, I'm, I'm just afraid some days I might be wrong. Maybe that's why Mike and I get along. Uh, but then as if he's sort of drawing strength in real time from his, his partner in crime here, uh, Mike, who says, you know, until this is over, I remain hostile. That's the moment the track flips. And then you go from this sort of confessional moment about sort of their, their, their concerns about the world to this absolute, uh, uh, you know, um, call to arms in which Ellen and Mike um, are, are, you know, they've admitted their fears, but now they're, they're really getting back to what they know and what they're good at. And so the second half of this song incites revolution, of course, uh, and features Zach De La Roca from, from um, Rage Against the Machine. And, uh, and you also get uh, vocals, like background vocals, from uh, Nadia Tolokonikova, um, which is a name, of course, that I've butchered, but she is, uh, she's from Pussy Riot. 
Um, so, you know, rather than just like the playful caricatures and, and sort of rap aggression that we're used to here, um, I think these battle cries are actually used to pick each other up while acknowledging the concerns that they've got about the world um, and, and sort of recognizing it can be a fucked up place. And don't get me wrong, there is still a ton of just like smash mouth um, braggadocio and awesome uh you know really sharp like killer lyric writing play yeah yeah totally um and i like a great example of that i think is like this ultimate shot call in my opinion which is that in the uh the chorus of ticketron um you know is run the jewels live from the garden um, you know, referring to Madison Square Garden, which I, I would like to think they'll be playing this year. So um, I will wrap it up just by saying, you know, I realize this has been kind of a long review, but but really a, a worthy album for it. Um, I'll just wrap it up by saying that I, I think, you know, all Run the Jewels albums really are a command. Um, and the first one basically said, look at us, here we are. The second one basically said, go fuck yourself. And the third one is saying, don't let the bastards grind you down. Um, so I think I just managed to review the whole thing without saying the word Trump. And, uh, with that, Thanks. I would like to, uh, to turn it over to, um, to, to Jeremy and sort of say, you know, I know you've listened to this a couple of times in the car in the last few days since it came out on Christmas or Christmas Eve. Um, you know, what'd you make of this? Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm not going to be as thorough as, as your review, obviously, but in, in order I had three hours by myself on the train. Today, so <laughs> you, you nailed it. But, um, I think it's funny that I, I heard about this release through you, Christian, and I actually uh, gave Run the Jewels a chance through you, which was um, the blizzard we had here in Massachusetts a couple of years ago, and I was just fucking angry shoveling snow every weekend. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you had been like, dude, you got to listen to this album, you got to listen to this album. And I kind of grew up a little bit with LP, with Company Flow and his solo stuff, and and. Um, was not as familiar with Killer Mike, and, and so, you know, I'll be quick about my, my kind of history with them. Didn't always, I didn't I love LP stuff, you know, I like it, it's interesting, it, it's definitely cool and, and cool sounding, but it was nothing I ever turned to, and uh, I gotta say, Run the Jewels 2 was the soundtrack to me wanting to, to kill uh, winter, basically. But um, Run the Jewels 3, I've listened to twice all the way through, it's you know, I'm kind of pleasantly surprised that, like you, and I think you, you've said the, the T word in the past, it wasn't just a, a kind of crazy, you know, F you to the current political situation, although they, they tend to be political and they, they certainly have the call to arms. It's more of like, a, you know, They didn't lose their shit. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, just a, it's a really, really solid album from what I can tell thus far. And, and uh, you know, some of my favorite tracks, I, I loved... Uh, the one that stuck out to me right away was Oh Mama, which is really just, a, you know, kind of a, talking about your mother and, and, and not doing, you know, the, the thing, you know, selling drugs or, or the bad things in the past. And it's just a cool song and, and really great chorus. Panther Like a Panther is the one that I, I think I might be that. a single or is on the radio yep. quite a bit. And that's a, you know, kind of a traditional Run the Jewels, you know, uh, just a fuck you song. That's great. Um, but yeah, that, you know, I, I like all three albums. I, I think this is, is right in line. I'm, I'm excited to give it more time. But right off the bat, um, I don't know, there was like a, I don't want to say maturity because they've been hot from the start. But there's there's sort of a, a, an evolution. A level, yeah, an evolution and, and kind of a flow of the tracks that works really well on this album. So I'll so turn over thing, to Wayne a little bit. Sorry, go ahead. One thing just to, to jump in there. I mean, when we talk about maturity, I know one thing that you pointed out to me years ago, I think, Wyndham, but, but has always stuck with me is this idea that, like, look, musicians at 19 years old sometimes strike uh, pure gold. But to be perfectly honest, 
a lot of times the bands that I love the most are the guys who've been around the block a couple times, and it's a different permutation. It's a different group of guys from different bands, but they're all professionals. These guys are in their 40s now, and, you know, I, I think they, they bring 20 years of experience in this business um, and, and 20 years of stories, and, and you know, they really, they've, they've managed to level up their game at a, at a comparatively late stage in their career, but it's, it's kind of fascinating to watch. They sound like adults, and they've got something to say, and it carries authority. Yeah, I would, uh, I think, I, I'm not sure if it's safe to say this yet, but we may be looking at the uh, George Michael and Andrew Ridgely of hip-hop. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I think it is true. I think there's, it's, it's rare occasions when, and I do think partially it's because, you know, like you said, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, but I think also I think they're experiencing more success at this point um, than they were, and they're equipped uh, which is not always the case with, with uh, um, you know, usually you're either, you have peaked by this point, or, I mean, it's the same with the, the Tribe record that was just so remarkable and, and you know, you know, it, no, you know, nobody saw coming. It was, you know, these guys are in their 40s and, and there's been enough, <laughs> apparently there's been enough to agitate people back into action, which is great. Yeah. No, well, I, I think, think that's too... Run the Jewels 3, you know, there's always, you wait for that letdown album, and these guys have kicked off, you know, prior to Fantastic Albums, and, you know, this is right in line with what I wanted, what I expected. Well, and, and since we, you know, since we, since we agreed, I was going to take lead on, on trying to review this thing. I got to say, you know, I've listened to it a dozen times or more in the last, what, two and a half days or three days, and, and in a bunch of different settings, and I've got to say, like, I am already teeming with excitement for Run the Jewels 4, which um, is unfortunately going to be probably a pretty long wait. But so far they've managed, you know, they've basically managed to put out an album a year. Um, My only piece of advice subsequent... Yeah. My only piece of advice subsequent to listening to a Run the Jewels uh, record 12 times in a row is do not call your boss. (laughs) Oh, that's right, man. No, it was was exactly that. I was so so deeply, like, entranced by this, you know, in, in my, uh, in my whatever, uh, quiet, comfort, you know, um, noise-canceling headphones on the train, and every time I would stand up to go to the bathroom, I was like, yeah, I should just jack this guy in the mouth. (laughs) No, Christian, you should just go get a Perrier and sit down and shut up. Anyway, I think... um I thanks very much because I'm I'm I have not had the ability to spend time with it like you have and I'm I'm really looking forward to I'm jacked up I'm jacked to listen to it now. A horse, of course, but who rides the support? Sitting high with a uniform, parking orders, demanding order. And I'm scared that I talk too much about what I think's going on. I got away with this, they might drag me away for this. Put me in a cage for this, I might pay for this. I just say what I want like I'm made for this. But I'm afraid some days I might be wrong. Maybe that's why me and Mike get along. Hey, not from the same part of town, but we both hear the same sound coming. And it sounds like war, and it breaks our hearts. When I started this band, didn't have no plan, didn't see no arc. Uh, just run with the crap, have a couple laughs, make a buck and dash, yeah, yeah. Get a little dap, like, yeah, I'm the fucking man, yeah.
That said, that was our premature release of 2017, the one that came out in 2016. What other releases are you looking forward to in 2017? So I can go ahead. Sure. Um, I'll I'll just uh, I'll mention quickly. I think one of the to start with uh, to start with a book here. Um, I was uh, watching uh, watching Strand of Oaks on the Tiny Desk concert recently, actually, and he mentioned that. Um, Jason Molina was actually the uh, the source of of um, you know a big inspiration for him and uh, and I think that you know while that certainly Strand of Oaks is something that I'm excited about Jason Molina um, there's an official biography coming out uh, by Aaron Osmond um, in May of 2017 about him and and I think that this is really kind of it, it sounds a little bit like the way that Trouble Boys was sort of meticulously researched. Um, and there's a lot of background here with family, friends, and, and the record label. Um, but also, reportedly, it's it's supposed to be a pretty deep dive into the Midwest music underground, um, including, you know, the, the sort of birth and rise of uh, Bloomington, Indiana's own uh, secretly Canadian records. So I'm pretty pumped about that. Throw out who uh, Jason Molina was, Christian, so our oh, yeah, know. I'm sorry about that. Um, yeah, no, he was, uh, he was sort of the... the Singer songwriter and and mine behind um, songs Ohio and uh, Magnolia Electric Company, um, so you know and and died really quite young of um, alcohol and, and uh, drug abuse. So um, definitely somebody we lost too early, but uh, but a big inspiration I think particularly. I mean you can probably speak to this better than I can, but I think he he definitely has a real sort of regional weight as well, and I, I think you know sort of in that in that Wilco Strand of Oaks corridor. Um, he's a he's a pretty popular guy, is that right? Yeah, he's a heavy hitter, and, and definitely um, Magnolia Electrico, especially was and you know a big sort of uh, like Guy Clark, who I mentioned earlier, kind of a musician's musician. I think a, a guy that a lot of these guys looked up to as a songwriter. Jerry, what are you looking forward to? Uh, you know, mine are, are pretty brief. I. I have had the XX song on hold, pretty much on permanent uh, replay in my household. So that's a very popular song in the Sartori house. And I'm really excited for the next album. I think it kind of plays off of the, uh, the Jason XX solo album that I loved personally. I think you guys did as well. And then uh, as far as visual or television, I'm, I'm excited. Well, actually I'll stick with music real quick. I'm just excited to drive my kids to school again. My kids have had like three, and not to leave with my, my children always. I apologize for those of you that don't have children. But, um, you know, I, I get to drive my kids to school daily when I'm home. And uh, they love pop radio. And, and my wife hates it. I dig it. So we get to, uh, to listen to Hot 97 or whatever the hell the local station is. We've had a pretty good year. You know, we've had Adele. We've had uh, Bieber. Cooking and, on three uh, burners. Cooking on three burners, yeah, no, it's been it's been a fun year, and, and you know I kind of get to see what they're into, and I just enjoy that they're into music. But it's also my sort of like my my George Michael tangent a minute ago, my escape into uh, you know full on pop fandom, and, and I, I hear those songs every morning because they play the same songs every morning, and uh, you kind of realize how genius a lot of those pop songs are. So I'm looking forward to 2017's uh, pop candy, and then you know as TV wise, I think which we could also call Pop Candy. There's a great comedy catastrophe, and we won't talk about uh, Princess Leia, but she makes an appearance on there. And um, it's, I think, just the best comedy on television or on on streaming 
video, whatever the hell you it's call it. It's an Amazon show. Yeah. The Amazon show right now. So short, sweet, but uh, amazing. Rob Delaney, Sharon Horgan. Uh, I think it's the best, I, my favorite comedy on television right now as well. Carrie Fisher, very funny as, as Rob Delaney's mother. Uh, sadly, we lost her today too. But um, I think, uh, yeah, Catastrophe and the easiest binge watch in the world. It's about five and a half hours to watch an entire season. So I think to watch both happen. seasons, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, my, uh, well, I'm going to jump into my music uh, list and then go into my TV and movies. But um, my music list is a bunch of bands that I think are kind of at uh, interesting points in their careers for different reasons. I think they're all at a, tur- at a, at a turning point, at a very, very uh, interesting fork in the road, and each one for different reasons. Um, Vampire Weekend uh, is due to put out an album this year. Uh, they uh, obviously Rostam departed the band while they were uh, working on this record, so it will be interesting to see how they come out the other side. Um, my one note on this is that uh, they should have taken the opportunity to change their name when they lost their first member. I figured that would be like the no-brainer of no-brainers, but oh well. Um, but it's like a it's like a cascading uh, a cascading like group of terrible names given um, Hamilton Lighthouser and Ross. And Ross <laughs> is like, like also the name of a band. He yeah, certainly didn't do any better. So it's or... it's contagious. I think it also just has that like weird lack of symmetry, like Tony Orlando and Don. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. there's no there's no cadence to it. That like yeah. yeah. Um, the inter- the ones I'm kind of interested in too uh, for different reasons. One a band that is at the end of a uh, run that I, I haven't been that thrilled with of late, but the Flaming Lips have an album uh, coming out in the very beginning of the year. I'm curious to see where it is, where they are, whether they've, you know, uh, they had a great long creative run and they've had more uh, chapters in their career than than most people can ever hope to. So I am curious to see if they've got another uh, great album in them. I didn't, I haven't particularly liked uh, what they've come out with of late. Um, Foxygen's another band that I was very excited about coming out of the gate and have gotten less excited about uh, due to the what I think is a sort of lack of focus. And so I'm curious to see what their 2017 album looks like. I'd like um, to think, I'd, I'd like to believe that they're going to be a sophomore slump and gloriously redeem themselves just because I've had a lot of fun seeing their shows and uh, following those guys. I mean, they started out really young um, and they're still, what, they're still in their early 20s. I mean, it's like... Yeah, oh, fingers crossed. Got, yeah, exactly. I just thought, you know... Very easily fall into the drug casualty care category yeah, as well. I just, I, I find them to be a bit like, um, you know, any number of bands that I like that I feel like I want a curator for where they're just like everything um that comes out they feel the need to include and and that doesn't make for um sustainable listening to me at this point in my life uh Lord is another one I'm kind of interested to see if there was really something there uh or if uh she sort of fades into the into the black um as they say uh would love to See what she comes up with, because I think there might be some. I think there might be some real special talent there, but I'm not 100 percent sold on that. You would know better than I, Jerry. I think you knew her stuff a little bit better than I. But it's taken quite a while for this second album to come out for somebody who should have struck while the iron was hot. So all these things are are 
you know, I'm I'm rooting for collectively rooting for all of these people. So don't get me wrong, but I I'm really interested to see what comes out next. I think in her particular case, she's probably also finishing high school. I mean, she was 16 when her first when her first album came out, and I you know, and, and a very very strong poet. But um, again, I, I I come from a you know, historically, and I, I realize that this is a much different time. But there's a, you know, I I came from a time where if if somebody was a you know, skyrocketed at 16, you 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 know you. You beat them until they produced. <laughs> you no, you beat them until they went to rehab. I think is actually yeah. the, uh, um, but but in this case, you know, it's a. Well, she's from New Zealand. They're weird. Let them have it. You know. Yeah. All right. Um, I just uh, there was a couple TV and and movie ones. Uh, I'll, I'll I will merely say that Tom Hardy has a TV show called Taboo coming out very soon that I'm very curious about because Tom Hardy it looks is a good. curious guy. Um, and then there's the Catherine, you know, film-wise, there's uh, the Paul Thomas Anderson, Daniel Day-Lewis, London fashion in the 50s movie that just looks remarkable. And uh, I'm scared to death that Trainspotting 2 is coming out, frankly. It, it doesn't excite me. It frightens me. Oh, what I thought you were going to mention but didn't, um, the uh, uh, Young Pope, which, of course, um, sounds like it could be an MC name. Yeah. Um, but is actually going to be an HBO show about a young pope. Um, that looks like it could be crazy. It's actually uh, it an American kind of pope fun. on top of it. it uh, yes. I, believe it's, I believe it's an American pope. I hear there is a uh, mountain what? of babies in the intro. There is a mountain of babies. <laughs> <laughs> and if anybody, if anybody has, if anybody has wanted <laughs> to me. climb or escape Baby Mountain, uh, then this is probably the TV show for you. <laughs> well. Uh, should we take a break and come back? Yeah, I think we uh, when, when yeah. we come back, let's uh, let's talk about some of the things that we're looking forward to in this podcast for 2017. So a couple of the episodes exactly. that that we're really uh, we're excited about, and then um, and then we can do our ending session. What are you listening to? All right, sounds good. See ya. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Uh, we are saying goodbye to 2016 and a lot of the greats that it took with us and welcoming in 2017 and what will hopefully be an uptick of a year. So, Jared, what are you looking forward to from the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast in 2017? Well, you know, I'm just looking forward to this pod in general. I think it's uh, we've kicked off 2016 nicely and... Uh, 
We have some really exciting upcoming episodes. So continuing the, the WTF series, I think you guys kicked off with uh, WTF TF New Wave. Christian and I are going to do one on, on country music in the 70s, Outlaw Country and Sleater Kenny. And then I'm also excited to do a second fiddle pod coming up in 2017, which is focusing on that member that has that great one or two songs, and uh, but always plays second fiddle to the lead. Otherwise Christian, known, otherwise known in Rolling Stone parlance as the Keefe songs. The Keefe song. Yeah, I think that that sounds right. Songs in the Keefe of life. So, uh, so I think uh, I'm I'm also very excited about Sleater Kinney and and in point of fact, um, doing this with Jeremy uh, at some point in the next few weeks. I mean, I, I definitely uh, definitely mined that discography over the last couple of days around Christmas um, when I wasn't listening to Run the Jewels on continuous repeat. Um, but uh, the other two that I'm I'm really psyched about are I guess one is um, of course I'll be I'll be traveling for work again in a, another month or two and and um, heading back out to. This big sort of Southeast Asia tour, um, one of the things I always like to do when I go out there, and particularly, very specifically when I go to Vietnam, is build myself playlists of, uh, you know, Vietnam War protest music um, and, uh, and you know, variously the music of, of Apocalypse Now and that sort of thing. So I'm pretty psyched. Uh, incidentally, um, believe it or not, in Hanoi there is actually uh, a Hilton Hotel. It is where I frequently stay. Um uh, much like the, you know, uh, much nicer, I should say, than than the Hanoi Hilton that, that McCain stayed in. But um, I, I would like to do a podcast from there uh, and and actually cover, I think, sort of, you know, pry into some of the interesting, um, some of the interesting, you know, some of the best uh, protest music and, and anti-war music of the of the nineteen late 1960s and, and 1970s. And the other thing I wanted to mention was a, a segment that I'd like to introduce soon um, on free band names. So basically the idea is we have all, I think, independently basically spent most of our music listening lives coming up with awesome names that haven't been used yet um, for, uh, for bands. And we would like to introduce them into the world and hope that perhaps people will pick up on these. So um, those, are, those are my couple of big things. That's great. Well, we... Um, I... Uh Look for in 2017. We've got a few segments that I think we're gonna, um, it's sort of, uh, I guess what do they call that? Uh, clip the ribbon on, or or uh, push the shovel, or whatever uh, that we're gonna shovel we're ready gonna, podcast. And yeah, that. exactly. <laughs> we're gonna uh, we're gonna. Well, speaking of your snow, snowy uh, 2013, um, we uh, we're gonna be there are a couple of the uh, segments that I'm I'm most looking forward to is uh, we're gonna we're gonna take to snake drafting, um, among other things, a super group. Uh, but I think we're going to stick with the snake drafting um, format for a number of things. Uh, we're talking about doing a, uh, a March Madness um, pod and bracket for the Greatest American Band, which um, really, uh, when you think about it, there are a lot of great American artists. Uh, the Greatest American Band is really difficult to pinpoint, so that's something to look forward to. We're also going to introduce, uh, right off the bat in the new year, um, a segment that we had, and we've talked about exhaustively. Arguably, this, this, this actually predates our conception of a podcast. Is that not right? Oh, God. Um, yeah, by a lot. <laughs> by, I think, about 10 years. So um, we are going to introduce the Pantheon of Hate, which is uh, a uh, the occasional induction of a band that 
but we have by consensus we would like to strike from the record um, again it's the pantheon of hate and you'll have if to you listen could, in if you could if you could put them in a box chain up that box and throw it to the bottom of the ocean so that you would never hear it again um, yeah, yeah i often i often refer to the the pantheon of hate and and hopefully this is a descriptive enough uh, way to get you interested in it, but uh, it's the it's those bands that when they come on the radio, you will drive you will drive off the road reaching for your radio trying <laughs> to turn it off. So yeah, anyway, something to look forward to. Other things to look forward to in two thousand seven seventeen. But um, that's the second time I've done that. Um, so uh, let's let's uh, finish up the night by uh, uh, asking our. Always a uh, final question of, of the pod. What are you listening to? Christian, what are you listening to? Other than Run the Jewels 7,000 times on Amtrak. I am literally, that's the, all I can, that's my internal monologue right now is, is just Run the Jewels. Um, but, uh, but I would say that actually, you know, aside from that, the thing that I've, I've been listening to, and of course, as you always say, this is like, this is a catch-all for whatever you're reading or, or watching or listening to. Um, I've been reading all the year-end polls. I know we did our own. Um, the uh, the year end sort of best of the year albums songs whatever um, look this is the most judgmental and critical time of the year for for people like us but you know it's it's really it's proof of, of uh, proof of concept that you know look everybody is a critic at, at some level um, and most people are you know, DJs exactly um, this means you know I'm discovering what I missed and generally raking myself over the coals for the things that I failed to list on our top twenty list, whatever, um, or excuse me, top twenty one list. Uh, but uh, you know, a special shout out to I, I would just say Oh My Ragnus for you know they have this one version of this called the Hardest Working Bands poll, and I think that this is a time of the year when people get like kind of negative and judgmental, and we start ranking our favorite bands. And ultimately, it's nice that one group out there kind of remembers like, look it's worth crediting all the hard work and effort that goes into being a young or a small band and giving credit to those guys who are just touring their asses off. I mean, I, like we've all benefit from that a million times a year. Um, and so that's a pretty good segue into one of the bands that they mentioned there is, uh, is Hey Baby. Um, they're a, a band from, from here in Brooklyn. Um, and I will be seeing them on uh, on Friday, uh, opening for Symbol Z Guitars, one of our one of our I believe our number nine album of this year. And then Saturday on New Year's Eve, I will be seeing High Wasted, a local Williamsburg band, open for Titus Andronicus at Brooklyn Bazaar. So I'm pretty psyched about that that lineup of shows this weekend. Um, and uh, yeah, otherwise sort of digesting uh, digesting all this end of year uh, jostling for position and and you know ranking all of our favorite stuff. Joe, what are you listening to? So, uh, sounds like an exciting New Year's weekend, by the way, Christian. Wish I was there. Um, listening to, I've uh, I've actually been obsessed with the Strand of Oaks single, Kids on the Radio. I know Christian mentioned them as an album that he's looking forward to earlier, and uh, it's also an album I'm looking forward to, but the single alone has been nonstop on my, uh, my headphones. Whether I'm running, working, uh, on a plane, doing whatever I do, it, it's it's omnipresent right now. And uh, it's a as, it's a big pop sound too. right? It's huge. Yeah. It's yeah. it's um you know I think I you know and people would probably shoot me down for this, but I, I think we were texting back and forth, and I compared it to a a really you know un unrefined uh, killer song. It, it's just a, it's a massive song, and I, I think huge hit potential. I really love that band or that guy or whatever it is, and. Um, it's a great sound. And, and then in general, you know, I'm kind of detoxing from 
Spotify Christmas acoustic and Christmas indie playlists that were omnipresent in my household Oof. this past weekend. And I think uh, I could do without Christmas songs until December of 2017. Yeah, that's um, what Run the Jewels is for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I will, I'll, I'll take Thank your you, 2017 and raise you <laughs> to 2027. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's funny. I, I happened upon a, a movie a documentary, Beatles, Eight Days a Week, that I'd wanted to see for quite a while. I, I missed it in the theater, and I was sort of ambivalent about seeing it in the theater, but, you know, as, you know, always I'd want to see, you know, I like to see those kinds of things um, as soon as I can. I get very hungry to see them. So uh, Beatles Eight Days a Week, I felt a little bit like, eh, maybe I will, maybe I won't, and it, it responded with exactly the same kind of, uh, um, you know, I had the same kind of enthusiasm having watched it, that I did going into it, which is, maybe I will, maybe I won't. It didn't teach me a whole lot of new stuff. It's definitely worth seeing because the concert footage is really interesting and, and listening to them be interviewed about why they stopped touring. It's basically a, a documentary made by Ron Howard and Brian Glazer about um, about why the Beatles stopped touring. Um, and there's ample evidence and uh, for for their reasoning behind it, uh, as you, if you see early... Um, the technology that they were using at the time just couldn't keep up with uh, the escalation in size of the of their fan base. So they wound up playing, um, you know, football stadiums with what looks like the rig that Titus will probably play with this weekend. So um, it's it's an interesting documentary, but it, I'm glad I waited to catch it on streaming. Uh, I wasn't that worth seeing in the theater i imagine also saw la la land for the second time which i'm enjoyed more the second time than the first and, and i enjoyed it quite a bit the first time so really liked it um just puts you kind of in a good mood um i'm interested uh, for you guys both to see it so we can talk about it uh more thoroughly and um you know look forward to having you guys see all the sort of year-end movies uh so we can talk about them but uh that having been said um I have been listening to uh, the Spotify Power Pop playlist that Jared and I put together, uh, which is a good tease for our upcoming Power Pop podcast, which should be out uh, within a week or two. And if you like Power Pop, which Jeremy and I uh, unfortunately have an enormous addiction to, uh, you'll really enjoy this. So that's that having that's. That's right. That's actually that's not going to be available until uh, until just before the episode comes out. But we'll definitely tease out a few of the songs on uh, on this week's list as well. I think that'd be a fun idea. So, yeah. So anyway, I think that's it for us this evening. But um, hey, uh, great talking to you guys, and thanks so much for listening to the Brother 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 podcast. Christian, can you tell us our as uh, always? Yeah, let's uh, please please uh, tweet at us at the Brother Pod um, and. Uh, Catch us on Instagram, also at the Brother Pod, and uh, find us on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you, and um, we uh, we look forward to hearing your corrections to our mistakes, um, your uh, your you know fierce disagreement with our opinions. Um, but but definitely check out Run the Jewels. I'd say this time, and uh, and tell us what you think. We're excited to hear from you. Thanks so much. That's it for today's episode of the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and drop us a line at brotherpod.com. Thanks very much to Damien Kendall for producing, and from Wyndham, Jeremy, and Christian, see you next time.